Well, good morning and happy summer. Last week, Dr. Stewart so kindly pre-announced the topic of my sermon this morning uh, to be predestination and the doctrine of the Trinity, all uh, exegeted and delivered in 25 minutes. Well, you can relax, it is not the topic of the sermon, but in case Brian did not announce for the buddy break lunch that will happen um, right after this service, he has graciously agreed to pick up the tab for the entire congregation. <laughs> so please join Dr. Stewart uh, at 12.15 in front of the Vineyard Bookstore. Thank you, Brian. Well, I do hope you are enjoying a uh, restful and refreshing summer, whether you're working or retired or a student uh, preparing to go back to college or on break, or maybe you're a caregiver or a care receiver, or you're in the throes of busy family life. Whatever your age and stage of life, God has created a need within each of us to be still and know that He is God, and to take time to allow Him to take an inventory of our own hearts and our most important relationships. And so uh, our psalmist this morning in our subject passage deals very honestly and pain, painfully uh, about a struggle that he's having. And so as we prepare to read God's word together, will you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we thank you that you are good and faithful in all things. And we're thank you, thankful that your word, you tell us, that it's a light into our path and a lamp into our feet. And so we ask that this morning you would open the eyes of our heart as we open and read your word together. Be gracious in our seeking, for we long to know you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalm 73, I'd like you to join me in your own Bibles, or if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 909. Listen now to God's holy word. Surely God is good to those, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, they are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. 
Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Well, if you were to come to my house, one of the things you might notice is that we have mature trees in our yard and in our neighbors. And while they look lovely and provide great shade, there are these secret underground things that grow called roots that don't seem to really respect property lines. The roots on our property are very happy to encroach in my neighbors and cause a mess there. They bring up the driveway and can cause a mess with sidewalks and walkways. And left unchecked, they really, really create a lot of issues. We've even recently had to hire someone to put a camera to go underneath underground to see where exactly the roots are making the mess, right? Well, in our passage this morning, it's really kind of a picture of what our passage is about this morning. It's about taking an honest look at how we're doing, getting underground if necessary, allowing the light of God's word to get under the surface of our heart to assess what's going on and what may be causing the biggest damage. Because we all know that there are some sins that blossom above ground and are easily identified. But there are others that are primary foundational vices. In some faith traditions call this one of the seven deadly sins. And so we need the light of a camera, that we need the light of God's word to go deep. Just like unruly roots that left unchecked, the sin in our lives can really wreak havoc. They don't respect property lines and eventually can spill over into all of our relationships and cause a great deal of hurt. Well, as we have just read, the psalmist shares very personally this, this song where he is describing a, a problem that he has, and this problem is with envy. And by way of brief context, many of you read the Psalms, you're familiar with them, but there are 150 separate Song of Songs uh, in a volume called the Book of Psalms. And within that book, there are five sections, and our passage, Psalm 73, actually begins and marks the beginning of the third volume. And what makes that unique is that several of those early passages in that third volume are written by one man, named Asaph, and he was a song leader, a musician, 
and he would have led the people of Israel in song in those psalms. And he reigned during the uh, reign of King David and also King Solomon. And so as we study the psalms, we see that they're all about the character of God and how the human heart works. And one of the things that we quickly learn as we read the psalms is that the human heart is terribly complicated. And of course, that's not an uncommon message. We know from Proverbs, King Solomon says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And the prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. And so while the human heart is complicated and the regenerated human heart can be oh so capable of good things, we can deceive ourselves. And just like it's difficult to pinpoint the real problem of unruly roots underground, the psalm teaches us that we may have trouble identifying where our real issue lies or the nature of our sin. And so as we unpack the treasures that this passage teaches us, I believe Asaph gives us three important uh, promises here. First, he describes how is envy defined? How is it often resolved? How is it often revealed? And how is it often resolved? What is envy? How is it often revealed? And finally, how does he say it's resolved? And so if Asaph were here this morning, he would tell us that he wrote this psalm only after he had worked out this issue with God over the sin of envy. He starts out saying, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But then he says, I almost lost my foothold. My feet have almost slipped. And imagine you're climbing a mountain or a steep hill. You know that feeling where you almost fall, but you avoid a disastrous slip? I imagine that's what, what he's describing. And yet, of course, he's speaking metaphorically. And his footing that he's lost is his faith in God. He writes, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, Asaph is observing the people of his day, and he says, they're so boastful and they have no struggles. Things are going well for them. And to make matters worse, these are people who are living lives apart from God, and they're prospering. And not only that, they're mocking God. It's like they're flaunting the fact that the people can live this way and still prosper. He says in verse 11, they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? And of course, this troubles Asaph. And, and so he begins to feel terribly angry and resentful. But then he starts to compare his life with others. He says, they're getting the treasure. I'm without the treasure. I'm not prospering. And I've kept my heart pure. My hands are clean. I've stayed out of trouble. I've kept all the rules. But my life is filled with struggle. It feels like, as he says in verse 14, all day long I've been afflicted and every day feels like I'm being punished. As I look around, these people who seem to be prospering are the very same ones who are scoffing at God. And I'm over here keeping my hands clean. And so here's the psalmist in full transparency asking, 
where has my faith in God gotten me? It really doesn't seem to be working out so well. And he says he almost lost his foothold. Now, this psalm teaches us that envy is subtle, and it can happen to each of us when our eyes are focused on someone else. And from our perspective, it appears that others are succeeding in areas that we're not. It's a little bit like the feeling when you see a neighbor flaunting a new car or the temptation you feel when your brother-in-law is making more money than you are. Maybe it's someone else being recognized or getting praise when you're feeling overlooked or undervalued. Or perhaps they have things that you don't. Maybe they're smarter, more attractive, better looking, appear to be so well-resourced. Things just come easier for them. But envy can go deeper than that. Envy not only weeps when others rejoice. Envy rejoices when others weep. The psalmist's envy began by deeply resenting what others had. And he says it almost stole his faith in God. And so what is envy? And why is it so powerful and so destructive in our lives? This passage teaches us that envy is the overflow of a heart that does not rest in God alone, that does not delight in God alone, tries to rest in an insufficient power, always striving, very ambitious, scheming, convinced down deep that we know better. We know how things should go. A heart that envies does not believe that God is in control and has their best interests at heart. My friends in a 12-step community explain it this way. The first step in a 12-step community is, I am powerless over people, places, and things. And I think the Christian reframes this as, God is sovereign over all creation. You see, he has a plan. You are safe in his plan when Jesus is the point of the plan. But one of the tricky things for that this passage reveals about envy is that it often hides itself in an injustice. If you remember, Asaph's envy actually began because he was lamenting over the fact that those around him were living lives apart from God. And not only that, mocking him, making fun of him. But then his lament over injustice turned to comparison. What happens when we compare our lives with others? You've heard the saying, comparison is the thief of joy. Envy often hides itself, reveals itself in an injustice. And when we compare our lives to others, we can go down a slippery slope that opens the door to resentment and self-pity. It can start with, that's not fair. And then we realize, why it's not fair. They're getting the treasure. I'm not getting the treasure. And where is God? And this posture begins to rob us of the joy in the life that we do have and a belief that the sovereign God we worship does have a plan for our life. But I'm so busy focusing on what I don't have and how great another has it 
that I'm tempted to wallow in self-pity. And the tragic consequence is this. This posture poisons the life we have been given and robs us from recognizing God's amazing grace in our own lives. Might our trials and circumstances, as horrendous as they may be, be the very thing that God uses to draw you to himself. One of the challenges for us is that envy, like other sins, is just so normalized, almost celebrated. I think every marketing campaign that you could possibly see is working on making you jealous, right? And so we have this tendency to downplay it or downplay its insidious nature and the effect it has in our life. And because of this, we're tempted to think, is envy really that bad? Is it so bad? Well, of course, I'm going to share with you places in Scripture that help us anchor us in answering that question. Opening pages of Scripture in creation, right? God created the Garden of Eden and placed Adam and Eve in it. They had everything. And God said, don't touch that tree. And what happened? Did they become envious and suspicious? Did God really say, might there be wisdom that we don't know about? And so directly disobeying him, taking matters into their own hands, it wreaked havoc on mankind. Their children, Cain and Abel, argued over birthrights, and in a jealous rage, Cain killed his brother Abel. Look at the life of Joseph and what happened when his jealous brothers were so envious of their father's affection for their younger brother that they sold him into slavery, basically leaving him for dead. And then in the New Testament, James and John, part of Jesus' inner circle, on the, last, the night of the Last Supper, would argue who would be greatest in the kingdom of God. Envy is out to wreak havoc in whatever heart it can find. Jonathan Edwards wrote in his famous sermon on envy, never underestimate the spiritual power of an envious heart. Understand what you envy and you will know who you are. Understand what you envy and you'll learn about your own heart and deepest desires. That's the flip side of Jesus teaching where your heart is. There your treasure will be also. So how do we know that we might be on the slippery slope of the sin of envy? Well, one way is to just to go backwards down the slippery slope. Do you find your thoughts going to a place easily of self-pity, of how bad things are? If you can't be there for another who is rejoicing, or worse, when they're weeping, it might just be that envy is crouching at the door of your heart. And so it was with Asaph. He says in verse 16, when I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. And he says, I was a brute beast before God. He says he was arrogant and ignorant. But, very common in the Psalms, there's this beautiful pivot. In verse 17, how does the psalmist get from point A and all the angst he's experiencing 
to point B, this beautiful confession of faith in an all-sufficient and all-powerful God. In other words, how is the strong emotion of envy resolved? Verse 17, when I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary. He says, when I was overwhelmed with this whole scenario and I couldn't figure it out by myself, I entered the sanctuary of God. Notice he didn't say, I cleaned myself up and I put on a good smile and I have an attitude adjustment and I, I ignored my real feelings and I put this plastic smile on my face. I just went about my life. In other words, I shoved down how I really felt, all those feelings of resentment. After all, that's what nice Christian people do, right? No. He says he brought his doubts and unanswered questions and hurt and all of the intensity about the injustices he was feeling and comes into the presence of God. And so can we. Instead of stewing, instead of ignoring it, instead of gossiping, this passage teaches us the importance of bringing our unanswered questions to our Creator, the one who made us and designed our life and governs our life and actually has the power to do something about it. Asaph comes into the presence of God to make sense of his life and gain perspective on God's story. As Christians, we know his story, creation, fall, redemption in Christ, and new creation. Asaph here is given the precious perspective of an all-powerful, all-knowing God. God has a plan. This passage teaches us we are meant to bring these big problems, the sin in our life, right before him. Now, Asaph lived before the promise of a Savior had been fulfilled, but we live with the full assurance of Jesus Christ and the rich blessings that trusting the risen Savior brings. We have the incredible blessing of entering into his throne room and may we never take this for granted. The eyes of the Lord look to and fro, looking to strengthen hearts who are devoted to him. And when he does, we are reminded to whom we belong, to whom we are anchored, not a system, not a government, not our resources. He finds us, not often in times of victory or mountaintop experiences, but usually in times of brokenness. I've shared this before. How many times has an all-sufficient Claire met? My grace is sufficient for you. So how about you? How is your heart this morning? Have you come to his sanctuary to feel his very presence and to vulnerably share the innermost thoughts and allow him to raise you up above the problem and hurt and despair and disease, above all the disappointments and heartache, the hurt of fear of rejection or the belief that you're not good enough, to once again be reminded that each and every promise of God is certain and true. I don't know which scriptures that you have 
meditated on this summer, but one that I continually say, morning, noon, and night, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This passage teaches us that self-pity robs us of joy, and the sin of envy crushes contentment. This is not God's design for his people. When we worship him, we lose ourselves in his majesty, power, and love. And it's here in his presence we are moved to confess, What have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In 1674, John Owen, a very fine Christian, wrote at the end of his life, Christ is our best friend, and ere long will be our only friend. I pray that I would be weary with everything else in this life, but having communion with him. Are you weary from this life? Draw near. Draw near in communion with him, and he will give you what you need to persevere. In his younger years, John Owen talked about his friendship with God is most maintained with frequent visits and best-kept conversations. Just like we don't cultivate our friendships by only reaching out in times of crisis, so it is with God. The psalmist knew this, yet I am always with you. This is how the psalmist goes from point A to point B. Dear friend in Christ, There is a beautiful struggle person on the other side of the struggle. There is a beautiful person on the other side of your struggle. There is nothing more lovely to him than a contrite heart who comes for healing and faith that's been tested. God has a plan. You are safe in his plan when Jesus is the point of the plan. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, we thank you for your word that knows no expiration date, that is faithful in each generation. Awaken us anew to taste and see that you alone are true and good. May all of our lives be a relentless drawing near to you in the heart to pursue you. May each of us say you are more than enough, for it's in your precious and unfailing name we pray. Amen.